Well, last week we started a new series. We are starting uh, at least a two-month series on Proverbs from the Old Testament. We'll look at this in June and July. We might spill over a little bit into the rest of the summer. And I, I mentioned this last week that Proverbs, you, you study it somewhat differently than you, you would uh, like the Gospel of Matthew or some of the Old Testament books that we've gone through. You don't really take a, a section of a chapter it really makes sense more to grab from here and there and, and develop themes that you find in Proverbs. And it's interesting the way the Bible is given to us and Proverbs is given to us. That, you know, the themes are not all laid out batched together. You have to hunt and look and sift and tie things together to find these themes. So we're going to really start that this week. We just last week looked at the need for wisdom. The Proverbs says you've got to have wisdom. It is a must. And in fact, we said it's not like Proverbs comes to us and says, hey, you know, ideally, once you've got all the other things lined up, you know, good job, meaningful vocation, uh, you're gainfully employed and do the things you get to do and good vacation time, you know, work on wisdom too if it works out. And Proverbs grabs you by the lapels and says, wisdom is how life is lived. We don't show up competent to navigate the complexities of this life. And the competence to do so is called wisdom. And wisdom is not being the best-read person in the room or the smartest person in the room. It means submitting yourself to God saying, here's how life actually works, and humbling yourself before Him and learning from Him and receiving His wisdom. So last week we said, look, it's, it's not just a good thing, it's urgent. And you got to pursue it proactively. Now, when you, men- when you mentally picture pursuing wisdom, what does your mental picture look like? You know, does it look like you alone in your room at a desk with a Bible and like old theological books? And there's a place for that. You know, we, I would say we all, we all need more solitude than we probably get in our lives. But here's what I want to look at this morning. Proverbs is very straightforward about the fact that you cannot cultivate and grow in wisdom by yourself. And there's a particular kind of person that you must have in your life if you're going to grow in wisdom. And that person is our theme. Let's look at these first three Proverbs, and I want to refer to the other ones, but let's just begin with these first three first from Proverbs 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Chapter 27, verse 10. Do not forsake your friend, and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would simply say to you what you know to be true, and that is that we lack wisdom. And we don't lack it because you don't offer it. We lack it because we are naturally unwise and we go our own way. And we don't listen to you. 
and we think that we have the resources that we need, and we think that we are strong and that we are smart. And so we of all people want to say to you, we need your help. And again, you've said that if anybody lacks wisdom to ask you and not to doubt, and so we're asking you as we worship, as we hear you, please give us wisdom. We just desperately need it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Last spring, the Boston Globe ran a piece, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to read a, a part of this. I'm going to read the first part of this article. The, uh, the writer begins by saying, uh, I'd been summoned to an editor's office at the Globe magazine with the old, we have a story we think you'd be perfect for. This is how editors talk when they're about to con you into doing something you don't want to do. Here was the pitch. We want you to write about how middle-aged men have no friends. Excuse me? I have plenty of friends. Are you calling me a loser? You are. The editor told me there was all sorts of evidence out there about how men, as they age, let their close friendships lapse and that that fact can cause all sorts of problems and have a terrible impact on their health. I told the editor I'd think about it. This is how reporters talk when they're trying to get out of something they don't want to do. As I walked back to my desk in the newsroom, a distance of maybe 100 yards, I quickly took stock of my life to try to prove to myself that I was not, in fact, perfect for this story. First of all, there was my buddy Mark. We went to high school together, and I still talk to him all the time, and we hang out all the, wait, how often do we actually hang out? Maybe four or five times a year. And then there was my other best friend from high school, Rory, and I genuinely could not remember the last time I'd seen him. Had it already been a year, entirely possible. There were all those other good friends who feel as if they're still in my lives because we keep tabs on one another via social media, but as I ran down the list of those I'd consider real, true, lifelong friends, I realized that it had been years since I'd seen many of them, even decades for a few The last paragraph. By the time I got back to my desk, I realized that I was indeed perfect for this story. Not because I was unusual in any way, but because my story is very, very typical. And as I looked into what that means, I realized that in the long term, I was heading down a path that was very, very dangerous. This is not from like the Sunday school, you know, handout.com. This is the Boston Globe. And he's using the language of this epidemic. And it's interesting to read this because I, pastorally, I feel like I have had a front row seat to this. I've had a conversation with some of you men, and it's not just that this afflicts men, but it does afflict men. But I've had conversations with some of you about the fact that I work hard, I do well, I love my family, I didn't know the line, I've got lots of acquaintances and all that, but like I don't have a friend. And he's using the language of the absence of such friendship, real friendship, isn't just less than ideal, it's dangerous. Proverbs would say, I've been saying that all along. So let's consider this. Let's think about this theme of friendship that that you can't be wise and you can't really cultivate the wisdom that you and I need in isolation. That we need this particular person in our life called a friend. Let's think about this. Let's think about the obstacles to friendship. 
what gets in the way. Uh, distinctives of friendship. In other words, what are the things that a friend does with you that other acquaintances don't do or that you don't have with acquaintances? So obstacles, distinctives, and then the insight of friendship. Right? Obstacles, distinctives, and then the insight of friendship. All right, first off, the obstacles. And I, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that I'm going to give you all the obstacles to friendship. I just want to throw out some of the big ones to help us think. This is not an exhaustive list. First off, uh, the obstacles can be socioeconomic. And it's interesting that the Bible has said this for 3,000 years. Look at the next proverb down, the fourth one, after the ones I've already read. Chapter 19, verse 6. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? Everybody's friend while he had money. Everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Now keep going. All of a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words but does not have them. And if you saw the book that made a big splash a couple of years ago called Evicted by Matthew Desmond about the plight of those who have to rent and cycle through uh, less than ideal rental property for their housing. That's one of the things that he talks about is that the men and the women and the children who are living these lives, they burn through friendships. They've slept on this person's couch too much. They've asked this person for money too much until there's just no friends. Now, in this room, that's not the side of the spectrum where things are usually going to fall. For this room, things are usually going to fall on the other side of the spectrum of those with means. Now, you may not feel rich, but by the world standards, you're pretty rich. And I'm pretty rich. And what that means is that um, people ask you to do stuff. People include you on things. People give you stuff, and they know that you can give them back stuff. They, uh, they invite you to things. They ask you to be on the board of something. They ask you to have a meal with them. They ask you to come over. They ask you to go places with them. And so kind of everybody's your friend if you've got some social ability. And when everybody's your friend, who is your friend? Like I wonder if you're, you know, such a person with means, with opportunities, with options. I wonder if you've ever like thought to yourself, if there were going to be eight pallbearers who carried my coffin, I don't know who they would be. Maybe three of those would be relatives. Now, I don't. Who would that be? Socioeconomic. It can be. Um, it could be what I'm just going to call non-necessity. In other words, you're not related to a friend. You know, when you have a sibling, you go, "Well, okay, all right. I guess we're siblings, and uh, we're stuck with each other." And sometimes that goes well. Sometimes it doesn't go well. But you know that you're stuck with each other. But a friend is not like that. You're not kin. And, and a friendship's not like food or shelter or just sort of these basic recognized necessities of life. It seems like this great optional thing. And so if your life is full of work and your life is full of like working on the necessities and maybe even giving a few moments to yourself of, you know, me time, there's just not this built-in space left over to go, ah, I will now prioritize friendship. It's a non-necessity. 
And by the way, that's, I would say that's just true across the board, but one subset of people seems to uniquely struggle with that, and that would be those who are in positions of leadership. And the, the reason I say that is that when you're in a position of leadership, when people work for you, when people report to you, when you're responsible for their being paid, first off, you're having to think all the time about the thing you lead. And if it's a nonprofit with four people in it, it might preoccupy you as much as a corporation with 2,000 people in it. But you think about it all the time, and you have to be very careful about your communication and the flow of communication and how things are perceived and all these human dynamics. And so you become very guarded about how you say things and who hears it. And what that can do is really overwork this muscle where you're never vulnerable or honest with anybody. And when I say honest, I don't mean you're lying at work. I just mean you never really let anybody in because you're leading everything. Let me give you, uh, I just saw this quote this week. This was um, last Sunday, if I understand correctly, Redemption World Outreach Center uh, installed its new pastor and changed its name. And the name of the church now is Relentless, and the new pastor who was installed last week is John Gray. So Ron and Hope Carpenter moved to California. John Gray was installed. And when he was installed, uh, there were these, either through video or in person, pastors who were giving testimonials about their love for John Gray and their confidence in him and even exhortations to him. And here's what his predecessor said to him. Here's what Ron Carpenter said to John Gray. And this was in the news, and it was shared publicly. He urged him, quote, secure you some friends. Quote, I have been through a million circumstances where I wish I had one friend. At the lowest point in my life, I stopped like a castaway at a four-way stop in the middle of nowhere, and I looked through my whole phone, and I wept because I had nobody in my life that I didn't lead. Non-necessity. One would be what we might just call blurriness. You can work anywhere, which means that we work everywhere. Uh, Anybody who wants to get you can get you. So anybody does get you. And these, and I'm not talking about, you know, back back in olden times where things were better. You know, actually Proverbs says don't ever do that. Don't talk about the good old days. So I'm not talking about the good old days, but in our cultural moment, there's no more firewall about work or just everybody being able to get to me, which means when do I stop and be with this friend and prioritize this friend or pursue this friend? And the other is just mobility and transition. People just move around more than they used to. I've had a fairly um, stayed put life, I thought, and I started thinking back through, where all have I lived? All right, Jackson, Mississippi, Starkville, Mississippi. That doesn't really count because Mississippi is kind of like one town anyway, so just that's like one, one place. But Jackson, Mississippi, Starkville, Mississippi, and then Nashville, Tennessee, and then St. Louis, Missouri, and then back to Starkville, Mississippi, and then back to Nashville, Tennessee, and then Greenville, South Carolina. And I feel like I've had a very stay-put sort of life. That's seven. That, and that's what I just said is nothing compared to some of your lives. 
So I'm in, I'm out, I change. This job may work, this job may not, which makes it hard to do what? Go deeply with people. Now, that, that's, just, that's just a representative list, but here's one thing that should, that should drive home. A lot of us seem to be waiting for the great friendship we want to happen to us, and it's not going to. It's like I heard, I heard a counselor, uh, I mean, not a counselor for me, I mean, come on. No, I'm just kidding. I, no, I, no, actually, I was in a group exercise that was led by a counselor. It wasn't just all about me or anything. But, but, uh, but he was talking about this, and, and it's funny. He said, you know, I think you're waiting for the cavalry. He's talking to people who are leaders and who struggle with friendship. He said, I think you're waiting for the cavalry to come, and they're not coming. That you have to happen to it. And when I've had one-on-one conversations with some of you about friendship, men and women, the word that always surfaces after a while is what? Intentional or intentionality. It will not just come happen to you. We're going to have to be intentional because the obstacles are formidable. So let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. All right, let's keep going. Um, So what are the distinctives of friendship? How do you know that you have a real friend. This is not just my social media person, but this is actually a friend, not just an acquaintance. And I'm going to use three points, and I want to acknowledge I'm using these categories. I got these from an Old Testament scholar named Derek Kidner. He wrote a great commentary about Proverbs, and I just want to use these points, so I'll acknowledge that I got these from him. They all start with C. All right, first one is this. A friend gives you constancy. Let me reread this proverb. We read it earlier, but let me read it again. It's on the bulletin twice. 1717, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. I talk for a living. How's it going? When you go through a painful time or you lose someone you love, or you're in great pain, an acquaintance may, sound, may say, let me know if I can do anything. Your friend will text you and say, I'm in the driveway. Or I'm coming over unless you say I can't. Or they just come over and they don't text. That, that is a friend. And along those lines, I would say, when you go through one of those great seasons of pain or trial or loss, or sadness, don't waste that because it will probably have a winnowing effect in your mind to figure out who your friends are and who they aren't. I'm not saying hate the other people. I'm saying it's clarifying that person is my friend. Constancy. Second, counsel. Uh, 27.9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. A friend is able to bring these two remarkable things to bear in your life. He or she knows you and has walked with you and has a really good sense of your strengths, your weaknesses, your quirks, your personality, your history, your patterns. 
coupled with, I know this, this is stating the obvious, but coupled with the fact that this person is another person, they can give you enforced objectivity. For instance, a, a friend can say to you a sentence that starts with, and, and these words can sting, or you can go like, oh, I don't want to hear this. But these words can end up being something great that you need to hear. Is when a friend says, do you realize how often you... Because typically we don't. I don't see that I'm doing that. I don't hear myself or watch myself doing that. Like, like a friend is the kind of person who could say, do you... Like, you know, you're talking about something or you're venting about something. Your friend might go, okay, wait, 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 wait. Do you realize how often you brutalize yourself? That you will be more brutal and cruel towards yourself than you would ever be toward another person. And you do it all the time. And you may not even know you're doing that. You may think you're being humble. And a friend can say, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's a friend. And this is the same in some ways, but let's click it up a notch, is um, candor. Look in chapter 27. And by the way, in a few weeks, Adam is going to, to preach from Proverbs about this theme of rebuke and reproof and confrontation, but let's at least give it a head nod about friendship. Chapter 27, verse 5, and ooh, this one is not in the nice southern playbook. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Your enemy will kiss you a lot and make you feel awesome about yourself. And your friend may actually sit across from you and in his or her own words say, I love you. And I'm about to prove it to you. And you know that feeling, of, you know, like that kind of friend who says, hey, can we get coffee? And you already know, oh, crud. And you just feel it. And it's not fun. And Proverbs says, that is your friend. When I was an undergrad, one day I was supposed to have lunch with uh, someone who's a close friend of mine, um, it's older than me, and we were supposed to meet for breakfast, and, you know, I wasn't keeping up with it, and I stood him up for breakfast, and so I ended up seeing him later that morning when I went to the union to get breakfast, and, and uh, he said, weren't we supposed to meet? And I kind of shrugged it off, and he said, well, let's just visit right now. So he sat across from me, and not because I stood him up for breakfast, but there was something he wanted to talk about. So I'm eating my omelet, and he confronts me about something, and it made me cry, in the union, as a sophomore. And, you know, like some people cry into their beers. I was crying into my omelet. And, and I, I remember this distinctly. I had a 10 o'clock intro to psych class. And so it's like 10 till 10, 5 till 10. I said, you're kind of wiping. I said, well, I've got to go. And he said, well, let me walk with you. So we walked together. He actually had a, an umbrella. There's like two people on a campus that have an umbrella. He happened to be one of those people with an umbrella. It's raining. And to this day, we joke about our movie scene moment. This was our movie scene moment. Like, I'm wiping my tears, and he's got his umbrella. And, and he walks me to intro to psych, and I could show you just where we were standing. And right before I went into class and he walked off, he said, Brian, I, 
I'm for you. And I said, I know. I just hated it. And, and I'm not embellishing when I tell you this because he and I have talked about this often that he walked off thinking, I just, that may, I may have blown Brian kind of out of the water. And I remember sitting down in psych class and thinking, I think I just rounded a corner. He just said the thing I needed to hear. And now you're curious about what it was. He was confronting me about being self-righteous. Dang it. (laughs) So, a couple of thoughts. If these are the distinctives of friendship, number one, you're not going to have many people like this. And Proverbs actually says, this may be really counterintuitive where we always think, if something's good, have as much of it as possible. Proverbs actually says, don't have many of these. A man of many friends comes to ruin. Chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many friends comes to ruin. You can only have a few. If you have one or two people like this in your life, you are a blessed man or woman. Your cup runneth over. But here's the other thing. Um, you may be having a little bit of a panicky moment right now where you're thinking... I think the friend train pulled out and I was not on it. And I, what I don't want us to do right now is discourage you or frighten you. I want you to be attentive to how important this is and move it up to the front burner. But, you know, Jesus said, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. And so what that means is you and I have to like really turn down the American knob way down because the American knob is, I will come up with a strategy and a flow chart and I will make this happen. And you have to turn that down and come with empty hands before the Lord and say, you're saying that friendship is essential and that I need it for wisdom, which is urgent, and I don't have a friend like this, so I need your help. And you may never have done that. And it would be really great if you did that. That, Lord, I need a friend. Um, That being said, though, what's the inside of friendship? Because, I mean, some of you do have a great friend or two or three great friends. Some of you have really been intentional with somebody that we are going to get together every so often. And by the way, that's the way friendship works. I mean, you can't, it's the same with children. You can't say, you and I will get together at 1 p.m. on Saturday and have rich, meaningful time. And like, it will feel that way. It just, you have to spend a lot of time together and sometimes it's magic and sometimes it's mundane. Same with friends. You have to log time together. So some of you have that. If you have that, what is the inside of friendship? There's a lot of insight. You learn about yourself. You learn about the person. You you get wisdom. But here's what I want to throw out to you. Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. These books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and some of the Psalms. And this thing that you see in the whole Bible, but you really see it in wisdom literature, is that it spurs you on to experience or have or prioritize certain things because it's wise to do that 
And so you should, and it's good when you do. And then when you do, it, it's not enough. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm not trying to be more earthy than the Bible, but I don't want to be less earthy than the Bible. Right in the middle of our Bible is a book of erotic poetry. God put it smack dab right in the middle. And as I've said before, it, it's written with metaphors, veiled images. But if you've ever read Song of Solomon and thought, did that just mean what I think it meant? It does. So there it is. It's a celebration of the love between a husband and wife, physical and spiritual. So let's say you have a a believing husband and wife, and they love the Lord, and they know God, and they love His Word, and they want Song of Solomon to be what their marriage is like. And they've tasted of it. You know, the only time the Bible says to get drunk, and it says it twice, The only time the Bible says to get drunk is for a husband to get drunk on your wife's love. So maybe this husband can say, I've actually tasted of that where our love for each other, it just washed all over me. But even that husband and wife will say, it's not enough. It's not enough. And it's that way with friendship. I mean, some of you have some great friends. And this, you know, this is the person that would drop everything to get to you or would get up in the middle of the night to be with you and would give you undivided attention for hours. And that is a gift from God. And at the end of those two or three hours, you could still come away thinking they don't get it like I get it. And here's the reality. We need friends, but there's no peer that can be the friend that you really need and that I really need. Um, let Let me read you something that Jesus said. He said this a little bit before he was arrested and then crucified the next day. He's with his disciples. And I'm going to read this. This, this, is, one of those, this is one of those Jesus statements that I, I don't think it's in the water supply, even for most Christians. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Did you know Jesus said that? Let me read that again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Your friend can try and try and try to love you, support you, understand you, get you, deconstruct you, put you back together, but your friend cannot crawl into your heart. And your spouse cannot crawl into your heart if you have a spouse. And your counselor cannot crawl into your heart if you have a counselor. No one can. And let's not resent each other for not being able to crawl into each other's hearts. But God knows your heart and my heart. 
You know, that verse starts with, if anyone loves me. Well, who does love Jesus? We love Him because He first loved us. He first loved us. What, what did Adam read after we confessed our sin? The friendship is the, of the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And then what was the next verse from the New Testament? Jesus saying, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I need a friend who doesn't have the sin problems that I have. I need a friend who can speak with perfect objectivity and perfect wisdom who perfectly sees who I actually am. And I've got some great friends on earth, but none of them can do that. I need a friend who can cleanse my bad friending. Even my being a friend needs cleansing and atoning. And I need a friend who is not put off by everything that's wrong with me. Adam said the greatest thing when we came to the table. He sounded, I don't know if he's still in here. Oh, there you are. I was going to say, yeah, the pastors, they're out probably in the parking lot smoking. But, uh, <laughs> but, but Adam, Adam, and this sounded like something a Puritan would say, and I mean that as a compliment. Adam said, when you come to Jesus, you will find him to be friendly. Isn't that good? Because God is holy, 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 and He welcomes sinners. Sinners who are bad at being friends. Sinners who make friends into idols. Sinners who are so strong and resourceful and independent that they neglect friendship. And He says, come to me. The friendship that you and I need is with God incarnate. And He says that if you love me, my Father loves you, and He and I will come to you, and we will live with you. And if God lives with you, and you're looking around at your life and saying, I don't, I don't know what to do, I don't have a friend, you know what? That's who you need to talk to. So you must love me, so help me. I don't have a friend. Amen.